Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here as always with Victor Davis Hansen, the Morton and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, I take our inspiration today from a piece that you wrote for a recent issue of City Journal, a piece entitled Brawn in an Age of Brains, about the value of physical labor and how in some ways it's sort of marginalized in this this current uh, cultural and, and economic moment that we're in. You start this piece with a, a very interesting analysis that hinges on sort of the changes in body composition that you, you see over time. The difference between somebody who goes out and works in a field, for instance, for a living and somebody who spends a lot of time in the gym. And you think there's something telling in the contrast between those two. Explain that. Yeah, I think that we've defined uh, human strength by uh, a superficial appreciation of a contoured body. So people, for example, will not do their own dishes or they won't sweep their floors or they won't mow their lawn because they feel that's degrading or it's time consuming. But then they'll go out into a gym and try to spend commiserate amount of time, but they're sculpting their body. And the, the irony is that not only do you lose something by doing that, and by that I mean you lose contact with the physical world of creating or destroying or altering the environment through your own muscular strength. You lose empathy with people who have to do that for a living. If you wash your own windows occasionally and you mow your own lawn, you have sympathy for people who do that for a living, often at very low wages. And then three, you get an appreciation that bodily strength is not necessarily detectable. So when I go out and I see farmers with often large guts, I look at their hands and then I go to a gym and I see people who may have a lower cholesterol, roughly the same size, but they don't have the same type of strength and they don't have the same worldview about drudgery. That if you put one of the people, many of the people who were sculpting but don't believe in doing their own physical chores and you put him down a row of, say, tying up young vines to a stake, he would be bored halfway. And you know, the other person who doesn't look as physically impressive might be able to do that all day long. So there are values, I think, in a variety of ways of at least occasionally for postmodern man to, to be physical and in touch with the, the, the environment. You say at one point in this piece, there seems a human instinct to want to do physical work. To, to what do you attribute that? I think there's this idea that we're born with that for every idea you have to reify it or what Aristotle said, it's easy to be moral or ethical in your sleep. That abstraction is of no real value unless it's not uh, matched by concrete action. And that's more than just ordering other people to do things. So uh, physical labor in the Greek idea is a corrective of abstract nonsense. I can stay in my yard and I can look out at my field and say, oh, wow, I don't like those almond trees. I'll think I'll just plant pistachio trees. But unless I'm willing to go out there and pull them all out and then wait eight years and plant pistachio trees and know the physical drudgery involved in doing that, I wouldn't make such a wild speculation. Not that that physical work is the only corrective on abstraction, but it, it, it does serve a lot of human good by saying for every idea, for every thought, for every word, there has to be some type of physical corresponding reality. And physical work is one of them. It's good for us. At the moment, there's this great primarily economic anxiety about the the pace of automation and how many jobs that require manual labor may in the space of 
who knows, five or ten years, uh, be able to be done entirely by robots. Most people talk about that uh, primarily through the economic lens, but I'm, I'm wondering, perhaps the case is overstated, but I'm, I'm wondering what you think the cultural cognates of that would be. What, what is a society that has an increasingly, contradiction in terms, an increasingly diminished <laughs> role for uh, physical labor? How does it change in meaningful ways? Well, I think that that you're going to create a whole class of people who don't deal with the elements. They don't uh, they don't know what cold is. They don't know what hot is. They don't know what drudgery is. They don't know what boredom is necessarily. They don't interact with people unlike themselves. They don't understand that the mind. We know this physically from scientific studies that the mind is sharper. And the memory retention is more acute when you have physical exercise and not just, you know, lifting weights. So that's a good thing to do, but varieties of physical exercise. And I think that that's going to be lost. And we have this idea that, you know, robots are going to change everything and replace every human endeavor. But uh, I, 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 there's a lot of things I can think of that say you have a robot to make a kitchen counter and cut the granite. Is a robot going to deliver it and measure it and put it into your kitchen just right? It, when you're, you blow a gasket uh, on your car or when you, uh, let's say, blow out a water pipe under your house, are you going to get a robot to go under your house and find the exact pipe and get a pipe wrench and fix it? So we could go on forever about that, but there's thousands of tasks that can't be done by robots and maybe even in some cases should be done. I think we all have this romance as well. Sometimes at night... Uh, I just channel surf late at night and I see these reality TV shows, Ice Truckers, Axemen, Deadliest Catch, and they're all about the, the underclasses and they all have a particular look, a particular accent, a particular way of doing things that seems to attract and repel people at the same time in the sense that the, I wouldn't want to have to do that, but I'm really curious that people can do that or, gosh, that guy's got a big gut, but he's still lifting all that tune onto the boat or, wow, he's smoking and you're not supposed to smoke. Or, wow, he's screaming at somebody. Or, wow, it's really cold out there. His hands are almost... And yet they have a, a sense that i got to see what this is really like, at least from a safe distance. I wouldn't want to do it, but there's something in me that has admiration for the people who who do it. And you note an interesting trend in this piece, actually, that you say amongst amongst people you know that some of the most successful people in what we might call knowledge industries, people who do work primarily in sort of indoor environments where their work requirements are primarily sedentary, those tend to be some of the people who have the most admiration for those kinds of trades. Where does that come from, do you think? I don't know. I think it's this increasing distance between physical work and uh, an abstraction or intellectual work especially in the age of computers. I had a couple of visitors, not a couple, seven or eight different people come out the last month, and I live on a farm, and I didn't have to say anything. They wanted to see the almond trees. They wanted to see the irrigation pipe. They wanted to go down to the pond. They wanted to ask me all these physical tasks, and they were fascinated by it. And then I noticed that they were saying things about themselves that they otherwise would not. In other words, they were saying Oh, you know, when I was in college, I waited tables or, you know, uh, I helped build trails uh, when I was on summer vacation. Or we took out a tree the other day and I helped the guy haul the logs to the 
with a trunk to the garbage. So there was an innate human desire to say, you know, I participate in the physical world too, and I wish I could do more of it. Uh, I don't know people who say I live. I have a beautiful suburban house, and what I like about it is I never have to lift a finger. Maybe that was why they built it in the way that they did, and they hired all this extraneous help. But there's a sense, I think, that they feel they're too dependent and they're too vulnerable to this world of muscular labor. In other words, that when people come to their home to fix their wiring or their plumbing or their driveway or cut trees they are fixed the roof they it just seems so esoteric and they don't know whether they're getting ripped off it sounds and uh, it's sort of the muscular classes revenge against their masters and they feel that to the degree that they're knowledgeable and they're capable of doing things they feel independent and they feel the equal of the other of the other there's something to that i know a lot of people that i went to high school that i still see that are roofers or uh, they work with cement or they're tree cutters and they have almost a, a revenge against the the non-physical classes, and they you know they they charge too much I think sometimes, and they have contempt for them. And when they meet somebody that actually does both, they develop a, le- a, a level of respect for them, and the person develops respect for their labor as well. In terms of the societal impact of this, there's another passage in this piece where you say we can assess the worth of particular generations by what they have built or let lapse. And you point to your home state of California here as an example, really, of both, of what they've built and now what they've let lapse. Explain how that's played out there. Yeah, I look at the two. I look at it often through the governors of J- Pat Brown, 1962. He defeated Richard Nixon after a four-year term, and he was he was in there for eight years till 66 versus his, the two terms of Jerry Brown. So one generation built this wonderful California water project with the you know, 40 million acre feet of storage along with the Central Valley Project, the federal project. And then they built these wonderful 99, 101, I-5. They built this flagship UC system, the tripart higher education of JC, state colleges, UC. And we were on the cutting edge. The LAX used to be one of the great airports in the world, as did San Francisco. And then we decided that that was, I don't know, passe. So the son, Jerry Brown, talks all about uh, planet planet Earth in one term, and now he's talking about global warming and the Chinese. We talk about sanctuary cities. We talk about all these abstractions, high-speed rail, but the fact of the matter is we went from 16 million people to 40 million people, and 101 is roughly the same, 99 is roughly the same, I-5 is roughly the same in the sense that they look the same as they did when I drove them 50 years ago, but they're almost unworkable now. We decided that well, that was the pre-modern world of our ancestors. We're Google, we're Facebook, we're Apple sophisticates. We don't have to do that. And then they get on, we take high-speed rail or we do this. But the fact of the matter is they still have to drive 101 or they still have to drive the 99. And it's a, a terrifying experience to do so. And then they get a drought and they wonder why there's no water. And they don't know anything about Hetch Hetchy. If I was to walk outside this window right now and ask uh, any of the people in the Stanford campus, what percent of your water comes from groundwater? What percent comes from the California Water Project? And what is Hetch Hetchy and how does that help you? They would have not a clue. They really would say, as that they have said to me, well, the water just, you know, rains up in the mountains and it collects in reservoirs. And they think that the, they think the Crystal Springs down the road on 280 is local runoff when they, they don't realize that their great great grandfathers in 1912 devised a brilliant system to transport it from Yosemite National Park, 140 miles here. 
Let me have you close this out, actually, by sort of picking up on that observation about the Stanford campus, because you talk in this piece about the experience that you've had with students at Stanford and with students at Fresno and how the different experiences that they've had coming up related to this topic of physical labor or even what some people might call sort of condescendingly almost menial jobs have shaped the differences in character between the kind of students you tended to run into on the two campuses. I- explain the contrast that you witnessed. Well, I was a professor here in the 90s, and I taught classics in the classic department. And then I, believe it or not, have a lot of students that come by and talk to me sometimes, mostly about classics here, even though I'm not teaching the classics department. And I taught 21 years at Cal State Fresno, mostly to a quite different, quite more racially diverse, but more importantly, students of a different class, very poor students, and they all had 20 to 40 hour jobs. So to the degree that they could read Greek and Latin, some of them could, even though they didn't have the necessary time to study it, they were very empathetic to soldiers, or they would ask me questions when we read Aristophanes or Carnians about, you know, how how did they shovel vines, or was it different than the vines around here, or they would ask me questions such as, you know, how 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 many how many miles Dr. Hansen could a guy uh, hike today in a, with a hoplite pack on his back or uh, how many is it how hard is it to kill somebody with a sword or a spear or how good was hoplite armor and or did they ancients have cement and what they were doing is they were trying to explore the ancient world in terms of things that they encounter every day whereas here it was does uh, Xenophon properly use the optative and uh, a secondary <laughs> tense, or is he wrongly used a subjunctive in secondary sequence, or do you know is, does he use the articular infinitive uh, in a way that he should not? And so they were divorced from that experience because they were divorced for that experience in their life. And as a field, uh, classics really suffered from that because when you go out and you talk to people and they they ask you questions, why did the Mycenaean world fa- fall? How far was Athens from Sparta? Um, did so- how did Socrates do anything? Was he a stonemason or was he just a philosopher? And these practical questions can be answered easier, more easily, I should say, if you actually have some experience yourself. I don't mean you have to do all those tasks, but if you're acquainted with people who do or you yourself occasionally do, then you have a, a greater empathy for a world that's, let's face it, it's a pre-industrial physical world where nine out of ten mm-hmm. people we're engaged in agriculture, and yet most classicists read about agriculture every day, incidentally, in rhetoric, history, philosophy, comedy, drama, and yet they just sort of ignore it. Or it, what, what was that about? What was that metaphor? What was that illusion? What was that simile? They don't really care. But if you were, if they were to do physical work, I think it would be much more poignant. All right. Thank you, Victor. And thanks, as always, to our audience for tuning into the Classicist Podcast. We'll be back soon. With another episode. Until then, you can stop by Defining Ideas at Hoover.org to read all of Victor's commentary. For Victor Davis Hansen, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org. <laughs>